one of my bigger things to realize or like gross was when I let go of trying to make everything look so pretty in movies. Cause I like, I came from photography. So I'm like portraits. Everything is down to the nth degree. Perfect. And I think that my, my movie work got a lot better when I let go of that and let things be like a little bit more imperfect and a little bit more, naturalistic. Welcome to There to Hear, an educational podcast where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and how they got from there to here. On today's show, gaffer Matt Hadley takes us on one of the 15 SAG-AFTRA indie film shoots approved to shoot midst COVID. As it's a new podcast, we're really wanting feedback, so go to media.colabinc.org, fill out the feedback survey, and you'll be entered to win a $25 Amazon gift card. Congratulations to this week's winner, Timothy Snyder. And from Colab Inc., I'm Tanya Musgrave. And today I have Matt Hadley, up-and-coming gaffer, having quite literally lit up the screen with Miss Juneteenth, which premiered this year at Sundance. He's just wrapped up shooting in Texas for the indie thriller Redstone, also of great interest. It is uh, one of the first SAG after approved uh, to shoot post or midst COVID. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with your there to hear story. Films would not exist without the crews. So what drew you to your particular role in film as a gaffer? Before I was really into film, I was a photographer. And I think you remember, because like back in these days, we were shooting together a lot. And I was I was really interested in lighting for photography. Yeah. Which, you know, when I started getting into film, translated as being like my strongest base skill set was that I knew how lighting worked really well. So people just started asking me to do it when I, you know, in film school for their projects. And, you know, I, I started doing it professionally and just kind of like fell in love with it. It's one of those jobs that doesn't, I think, get a lot of recognition, but like you still have a lot of creative control on a mm. project. If you're working with a DP who's like really collaborative. Yeah. Um, so I like it because it allowed me to kind of hyper focus on one aspect of filmmaking the lighting and kind of get really good at that thing. So that's kind of just where I've been at for the past few years. It's like trying to hyper focus on that. Yeah. 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 I remember probably my earliest memory shooting with you was in good old North Carolina. I think there is a studio that you had set up and we were mm -hmm. working with strobes really for the first time. We were just kind of figuring stuff out and Hey, like what about this kind of clamshell lighting? What about this? What about that? And then when I got my first light modifier, it kind of threw light a lot like a beauty dish. And I was like, Hmm, Matt should be able to tell me <laughs> how to use this thing. And we got just like, I don't know how many of us were there, like a dozen people that just kind of showed up at this abandoned house somewhere yeah. in Tennessee. <laughs> oh man, I remember that, up on Lookout Mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like I, I heard that house got that got torn down, but oh my gosh, it was pretty sketchy when you go in there yeah, and there's like syringes and and mattresses. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. That was, that was pretty sketch uh, back in the urban exploration photography days. That was... <laughs> I remember that. It was a fun time. But it was a legit shoot. Like it turned out because, I mean, I remember you very clearly. You're teaching me the inverse square law. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that was great. I remember you went in and did post on those photos, like ridiculous, like the water stuff in the kitchen. It was the elements. Those days when you yeah. were cranking out like Photoshop photos. I was, wow. I don't, where did this even come from? 
You know, it all starts with a light, though, and it's really interesting, um, you know, like you were saying before, that not a lot of people think about it, but it is quite literally, I, I still remember uh, F-stoppers doing a shoot, even just with an iPhone, when they did the iPhone f- fashion shoot, and, you know, you can look it up, it's fantastic, they were shooting with an iPhone 3, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, of course, taken you into film and translated into quite an awesome start. You were shooting in New York a lot, what kind of shoots were you involved with up there? I've done two features in New York. One kind of like I did like a section of that's called Materna that I've heard has turned out really well. It actually got best cinematography at Tribeca this year. And I did another one up there earlier called What Breaks the Ice that was a lot of fun. And I've done a few commercial things here or there. I, I basically have a DP in New York who likes to work with me. So whenever she has things that are you know, like appropriate, I'll, I'll generally kind of go up to do those. Is there a particular style that you gravitate to or that you like better narrative or commercial? Yeah, I definitely prefer narrative. And I think that is, that is because like commercial just kind of has a style already. Like, I think that there's like a lot of sub genres within commercial lighting, but like by and large, the most popular way to light a commercial is just like big, bright, no shadows. Um, and that's generally because like you're on set lighting in front of a bunch of ad agency people who mm-hmm. don't know anything. So there's a, there's a lot of like commercial stuff generally ends up catering to this really specific audience mm. being appeasing agency executives, which, you know, I think that narrative filmmaking becomes a lot more about like self appeasement. Like it is, it is more about you and the director and the DP liking what you see. Whereas like Mm -hmm. your opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot in commercial. I mean, Mm -hmm. like there are times where like people will trust you and you get to make some really cool looking. And I've, I've made some commercials that like had really cool edgy looks before, but it's like cinematic. Right. Like that's definitely a thing that's becoming more popular, but I feel like it's rare people tend to be really reserved with the way that commercials look because Mm -hmm. they're, they're afraid of what might happen. It's familiar. Um, And, and movies, you can get really out there. Like if you got a DP who like really wants to get weird with it, you can really like go out there. And that's what I love about movies is because all of my narrative work, I don't think you could put any two of those films beside each other and draw a ton of comparisons between them because Mm -hmm. you really approach it you know, in a unique way from the get go, every time you get into a movie, you know, like whether that's what your inspiration is or or what you draw from. Like I, one of my favorite movies I did, the DP and the director had given me all of these Vermeer paintings that Mm. they were like, this is the feel, like this is the aesthetic and the color palette. And that's really interesting. Cause like, like, what does that even mean? You know? And like, (laughs) you get to kind of like dissect that. And I think that's, what's great about lighting for narrative is that you're always trying to strive for this uniqueness and you're always wanting Mm -hmm. to find ways to integrate the lighting into the story. Like, why are these things, this color, you know, like, Mm -hmm. why did we make this decision? What is the color palette for this house versus this house like how do we want those two locations to mm-hmm. feel because that's the other thing I think you miss in commercials is movies there's kind of like a, you go through so many different spaces mm-hmm. uh, so it's about lighting spaces in a way that they like juxtapose against each other whereas commercials it's very much like usually it's like it's this is the house like make this like nice pretty house so I have a question with particularly connecting your 
your experience with photography. Now, as a photographer, it's kind of one of those things you're like, oh yeah, as soon as you see a photo, like I can tell right away that X person, whoever shot that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind of becomes a pinnacle of, you know, some sort of a goal out there. Like, oh yeah, I want to become, I want to become immediately recognizable, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something that, could serve you well in a way, like if you have directors that want your certain look, but is it something that you're trying to strive for where you want to become recognizable or that you're able to fulfill a director's vision so much that like all of your work might be unrecognizable to you? I don't know, like, because I know for photography, it seems to be something that people do strive for. Is that something that you strive for? People, the photographers definitely do want that, like to be the look, right? Like, and that is because photography has this, there's like a name association with it. Like, you know, a Dave Hill photo when you see it, I don't even know if he still shoots, but (laughs) I remember that from back in my day or, but I, I think it's different in, in my world. I think specifically for me, not really, right? Because Mm -hmm. like as, as a gaffer, you need to be able to slot in with like multiple different DPs, Mm-hmm. on a regular basis because, you know, grip and electric, I think they move between movies more than any other department because they kind mm-hmm. of like slot into a lot of different places. You know, I think, I think some DPs strive to have a style. Mm-hmm. And so I, I strive to like fit into that person's style or that DP style. But a lot mm-hmm. of my favorite DPs to work with, I think would say that they don't have a style because I really? think, I think it is the, the fluidity that is really advantageous, you know, like the ability to conform to a director's vision or, Mm -hmm. you know, to conform your own vision in a way that like matches this narrative in like a really good way. You just know that it's good cinematography as -hmm. opposed to, Oh, I know that that is Matt Hadley's cinematography or. Yeah. I think that taste is, is like more important. Mm -hmm. And I've always, I've always gone down that line where, I'm not great at making direct comparisons to other movies. Like mm-hmm. when, when talking about how to do something, mm-hmm. you know, like I've, I've always been more of just like a general kind of aesthetic taste kind of person. Like I, I kind of feel like I know what looks good on a specific camera mm-hmm. and I kind of like strive for, you know, what I think people expect to see, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Is it, is it something that you're eventually wanting to do where you're wanting to be able to collaborate more with directors or do you like that, part where you can just collaborate with the DP you kind of kind of you get to kind of stay out of the politics of stuff or you know that kind of thing I mean I like staying a little under the radar on sets Mm -hmm. like uh, that's kind of why I like gaffing instead of trying to be a DP is that you you fly under a lot of the politics of set I I love it when a director like wants to be involved and talk about the lighting process you know yeah but I find it's rare that there are directors who really get in that deep, you know, I do a lot of like indie film production. And so Mm -hmm. I've worked with a lot of first time directors Mm -hmm. and I find it's, it's very common in a lot of, in a lot of circumstances that the DP is running that side of the ship anyway. And the Uh the directors really, they, they kind of hyper-focus on the actors. You'll hear them talk shot a lot with the DP, but like it's, it's rare that I've had a director, get get like down in the nitty gritty of of how the film is lit but like when they do generally they've i've like agreed with them and i've enjoyed the process but mm-hmm. i would say it's rare that they get that granular unless there's like a really specific thing that they're looking for or like a story beat that is 
a lighting change or motivation. Yeah. You know, a lot of the times it's, it's really just kind of like being in it with the DP, which is nice. Cause I yeah, think yeah. DPs, we always click a lot because we're kind of in that same headspace. Yeah. Yeah, and I I feel like you would be able to have a little bit more uh, creative problem solving. Well, it, it, it could go both ways. Like either, okay, what do you want? Like, do you have any idea of what you want? Or, you mm-hmm. know, and coming up with that or being able to kind of flex that muscle as well and just be able to, hey, like, well, let's, if they don't, if they're not sure what they want, like, let's, let's see what we can do here. So one of the things that you had mentioned before was being able to be really creative with how things are way out there as opposed to commercial and stuff like that. What does that look like on set? You know, like, obviously there's, I guess, not your three point lighting or what have Mm -hmm. you, but like, what are some of the odd ways that you have come up with to light a set? I think that one of the freedoms that you flex a lot in narrative versus commercial, all of of cinematography right now, is like you can make stuff dark. Like you can't really get away with having very dark scenes in commercials. Um, Rightfully so, because TV rendition is a little bit dodgy. And when you're you're shooting for projection as your main, you know, kind of format that everyone's thinking about, you can kind of trust your camera to shoot a little bit darker because like projecting something in a dark room, you'll, you'll be able to get the details of it. So I think that's the way a lot of it is like shooting like darker scenes and being able to shoot things that are darker. Cause that's, I like my, I really like night stuff. If, if you can get away with it, just like slammed way down into the bottom of the image, instead of having like a very contrasty backlight, mm. I like to have a very low contrast, but just like super dark. Like you can barely see it. Cause it's the only thing I found that feels realistic to me i struggle with like the way that nights are shot in movies like i don't think it it looks very realistic a lot of the time and that's something you can never really pull off if you're not shooting to like such a controlled environment because you know that movie screens are generally going to look the same I, i think in general it's like contrast is a lot higher on a movie set like you're getting a lot more like shadows like lighting people to the backside where you're not necessarily seeing their face so much is something that like you'd never get away with doing in a commercial my my lighting style i like to to keep it as natural as i can not not natural as in i'm not using artificial light because i use a ton of artificial light but like <laughs> yeah yeah natural in in the sense of like light comes from places that like makes sense or should mm-hmm. make sense in the world mm-hmm. day light comes from windows you know yeah. like nights light comes from lamps and and i think that you break outside of that in the commercial world to try to keep things looking very bright and airy. But in, in mm-hmm. narrative, you can really like let somebody walk into a dark part of the room because mm-hmm. they went over there. That's like away from all of the lights and like, it makes sense. Um, and that's something you don't get to flex. Yeah. Sometimes it's just too perfect. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, your student film, everything actually is like three point lighting. I think it definitely was one of my bigger things to realize or like gross was when I let go of trying to make everything look so pretty in movies. Cause I mm-hmm. like, I came from photography. So I'm like mm-hmm. portraits, everything is down to the nth degree. Perfect. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that my, my movie work got a lot better when I let go of that and let things mm-hmm. be like a little bit more imperfect and a little bit more naturalistic. 
because mm-hmm. it just, it, it feels more real um, mm-hmm. to have things that don't necessarily work out what you would call like perfect or like yeah, yeah. somebody being lit from not necessarily the most flattering angle, but like that's where the light is in the room. Gigs in the entertainment industry are few and far between at the moment. It's a bit of a unicorn. Um, how did you score a spot on Redstone's crew? The DP worked and me worked together on Miss Juneteenth. Actually, he was he was first assistant camera on on Miss Juneteenth. He was second assistant camera mm-hmm. on Miss Juneteenth. So we had worked together and we talked a lot over the course of that movie. And he'd actually had another movie midway through last year that he had tried to get me on, and I, I it just wasn't available. So when this came up and they were looking for crew, he reached out to me and Richard Porter, which is my favorite key grip down here in Dallas to see if we could come do this movie and, and everyone was available. So we did, it was mostly just that previous, you know, relationship of he, Mm -hmm. he had been trying to get us on a movie together. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when this one came up, he, he reached out and because of COVID-19, I was available. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, okay. I'm super curious from beginning to end, what was life like on set? We, we weren't, tested ahead of time which i i get because like the, the infrastructure doesn't even really allow i think for testing if you're non-symptomatic right like i don't think you could go get a test on the street right now oh. unless you said that you were presenting symptoms there's a really big white paper that's out mm-hmm. right now that yeah. i think is like cross it's like sag and iatsi yep. and the dga all yep. came together and they put out this like list of guidelines for sh- shooting mm-hmm. uh during covid 19 so that was kind of the like first thing was the producer sent us all of that and told us to read it and uh there's like a lot a lot of guidelines you know and and so once we get into shooting it's definitely a lot of little things that that really add up i think one of our advantages was that we were shooting out of town and we were shooting in a very small town that only had like a few cases and we were all kind of staying together for the most part. So I think that to me is the biggest thing for filmmaking is if you can quarantine everybody together so that like everybody on the crew is together and there's not a whole lot of outside factors. I think that's your first best bet. But then after that, it was a lot of the stuff you'd kind of imagine wearing masks um, Mm -hmm. on set. You know, there was a heavier emphasis on wearing masks inside than outside, because if you're outside, you can kind of spread out hand sanitizer all over the place, frequent kind of temperature checks from day to day, individualized meals and crafty, right? So like no buffet catering, Mm -hmm. which on this movie took the form of, we would order every day. They'd bring us a menu from like a local restaurant and they were ordering kind of individualized meals. I did a commercial just after the movie where it was a studio and we had catering and the catering was bringing everything in in individualized kind of packaged meals. And then for crafty on the movie, it was like everything was packaged and there was a guy who was kind of like distributing it, you know, from, Mm -hmm. from, from the station. So you'd go and you tell him what you want. He would kind of distribute it out. So that was definitely interesting. And did you guys eat in shifts? No, we didn't eat in shifts. We generally kind of ate amongst our departments. I ate in my car a lot and that's like not even a COVID thing. That's just like a Matt needs to get away from everybody uh, in the middle of the workday kind of thing. But uh, there wasn't, I guess there wasn't hard and fast rules about like sitting away. There was enough seating that people could stay kind of spread. But I really think that 
I, I don't know. Like I making a movie under conditions where you're having to stay away from people like really all the time doesn't seem feasible to me. Right. I think that we drew more safety from kind of trusting that the other people didn't have it. And like we did have one of our crew members left halfway through or like the first week, one of the producers had had to fly to L.A. So they had to get checked during that process and came up negative. So there was this kind of like, okay, here's a person who's been in our unit for like a week and, and has doesn't have it. So like we don't. So if we can kind of like keep kind of all together, kind of like herd mentality. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I don't know, it's weird because there's a lot of, you know, I think one of the guidelines is only one AD on set and no PAs, which mm. is kind of wild. Our, our AD was like, who who does lockups? Like when we cut and roll, you know, like all of these like little functionality things mm-hmm. are become like a really big deal when you don't have PAs on set. They do like a lot of little things here and there. You yeah. know? So I think yeah. that that was one area where we were a little lighter on it and you know, and I think that, you know, like, like we had SAG come visit us, you know, like mm-hmm. they, and, and, and they didn't really say anything. So like, it's, it's interesting to me because there's, there's a lot of guidelines and I'm curious how much they are being followed all over the place, especially mm-hmm. by like bigger shows. Cause like, that's the one other thing is like, we were a tiny show, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like 20, yeah. 20 person crew, maybe mm-hmm. if that. So I'm curious, like what the, what the version of this is that was like, you know, the big studio movies that managed mm-hmm. to get up and off the ground during the time that we were shooting. Um, yeah. Cause from what I know from what I heard was there was like 15, I think SAG movies shooting mm-hmm. at the time that we were shooting who got up. And, and I wonder how many of those finished because we only, we were an indie. So we only had like a three week schedule, mm-hmm. you know, but like a, a major movie that's still shooting, everything's yeah. starting to close back down. Yeah. yeah so I'm yeah. curious how much, how many of those got cut halfway through their schedule just by like the fact that States are starting to close down again. Yeah. Yeah. Did it slow down at all? Did your production or your work, did it get actually get hindered because of it? I don't know. I don't think so. We, we made a pretty good pace, but I think our, our director helped with that a lot. He like knew what he wanted and, and like knew when he got it, like we never beat up 40 takes of a scene, which I think is like important. I think the crew risk is moderate, you know, cause we can be in PPE. It's the actor risk. That's really yeah. high because they yeah. have to be without PPE in front of each other. So of course. I think our director did a really good job of, of really limiting the amount of time we ever had actors on set out of PPE in front of the camera acting. We weren't beating up scenes. And I think mm-hmm. there was some level of, of encouragement from, from SAG about that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I know there was a lot of specifics. I think they had to deliver like a list of how far the actors will be away from each other. In every yeah. Scene. I was curious about that. Like, uh, I mean, any kissing scenes, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I think like there was a lot of specifics they had to deliver about that. Mm-hmm. They had the whole thing storyboarded, which is a rare occurrence to see an indie film yeah. because like it was a sag. Yeah. I, there's a lot of, I think getting the approval is, is a really difficult thing. Cause we were kind of like on the maybe train for a while of like, is the movie going to happen? You know, like they had put dates out to the crew 
um, mm-hmm. and had people like agreed to do it, but like they were saying until we can't say for sure until we get this SAG approval. The SAG approval came in. It was like Friday, and the not like the following Monday, but the Monday after that was the first day of production. So that oh, was wow. definitely okay. a hindrance. Was that wow. we had not, and and maybe just due to like being in the sense of mind of not doing a whole lot, a lot of people, you know, me and the key grip included had not put a ton of pre-production work into the movie because we weren't sure it was going to happen. And then it did get approved and we had a week to like, like one week from when we found out to load the truck, which was like a going the back and forth with a rental company during that time period is, is like a really stressful, fast paced (laughs) thing. Cause usually you kind of take weeks to kind of like adjust stuff. And and like, we didn't scout locations. Me and the key grip got on the ground and went and visited a couple locations with the DP personally, but there was no like pre scout for everybody just for the Mm -hmm. sake of like keeping people from getting together and going out in public as early on. So were there any protocols that definitely did not work? For you guys, it turned out but like, this is a mistake. This needs to go away. I don't know. I think that especially if you're in a hotter climate area like Texas, the idea of wearing a mask the whole time wouldn't really work if you're outside. Mm-hmm. Like if you're shooting inside in an air conditioned building, like that's OK. But like we had a couple like 103 <laughs> days in the Texas heat where like if you were carrying around equipment while wearing a mask, you're likely to hurt yourself, I think in other ways, or it, it, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. really became tough. Like even going from inside to outside, you know, mm. when you put the mask on, it's definitely a thing, Shocker. you know, like, and I'm, I'm 100% for the idea of wearing masks and mm-hmm. stuff in public. But I think as far as, I don't know, I really believe that the, the secret sauce in filmmaking is creating like a, a quarantined environment for your crew where you kind can of like all that whole feel Tyler Perry of safe. model. Right. The way that they approached it where it's like they're just like straight up locked in there. That feels like the <laughs> safest option to me because I think you'd have a hard time with like a whole group of people, you mm-hmm. know. And I, I also think it would just be difficult in a lot of ways. You know, we, we did as best as we could, you know, a lot of the times and all of our interiors. You wear a mask around these people, but like say the grip crew specifically, we were living in a house together. So like... Mm-hmm we went home from work. We weren't wearing masks when you're at home off of work. So like at that point, you're still getting this kind of like potential of contamination. Right. And, and you kind of have to trust that like people are going to be responsible on the weekends because we Mm. were close enough to Dallas that everyone was going home for the weekend. I, I think that one thing that makes me feel good is that seeing as COVID has become such a political thing. I think that I, I can trust that most of the people in this industry agree with me about how serious it is. I don't mm-hmm. feel like there's many people in our industry who, who, who swing far enough to the other side who are being unsafe about it. I trust that anybody I'm working with is probably going to the links that I am going to, mm-hmm. to be safe about it when you're kind of like out and yeah. about in public. We've been mentally preparing for like this kind of thing for like wearing PPE, getting temperature taken. I think even like on college campuses, like their temperatures being taken before you even get on campus. Were there any surprising effects of the regulations, like effects you weren't necessarily expecting like good or bad? Yeah, not necessarily, you know, like I, I think, Going into it, it was pretty much as we had kind of thought and talked about ahead of time, mostly because we were following this kind of like specific list of guidelines that we'd all kind of gone over before we got into it. I think the food thing was definitely one of the weirder ones. It's like, 
and and this is like weird and petty, but it's like sometimes you're like more hungry on set and and you're kind of like locked into this size of meal, which is kind of like it seems really petty, but if you work in film, you understand how like being properly fed is such a big deal. That's like why craft services exist. So that was definitely kind of interesting going into, especially the way we did it, where it was like trying to be on top of being like making orders every day, you know, for the next day and the producer having to go around and do it. I can imagine that that took an enormous amount of bandwidth from the producing team, which was very small to have to even manage that, right? Like you've mm-hmm. got to go and you've got to have somebody pick up all this stuff on a movie that had two PAs on the entire yeah. set, right? Wow. Like, like I bet production suffered a lot for it. And I mm-hmm. think that G and E we had kind of like the general safety guidelines to follow, but a lot of our mm-hmm. stuff was business as usual. But I, I can imagine that on the like production department, it must have been there must have been hundreds of things that I never even had to really interface with that that had to be done differently or approached differently. So I think that's yeah. that's definitely the the place that I think are going to feel it the worst, which is maybe the nature of film in general is that they have to like produce things, and in this case, they have to produce this like safe environment for us to work in. So I think mm-hmm. that they're going to get the brunt of of the issues from the changes and, and the G and E department, it's mostly going to be the difficulty of working in PPE. And then also just kind of like maybe tending to work with less people physically on set at any given time, especially when you're in interiors, you know, like we Mm -hmm. had a lot more of our guys at the truck, you know, we could have smaller groups of people kind of like managing what was going on inside. So for how, you know, you're basically mentioning all of the changes on the horizon that people have been dreading in a way, you know, even just for production. I remember talking with a line producer. He was saying, yeah, the number that's kind of floating around is every production is adding like 10 percent onto the budget. And, you know, like people don't like hearing that, you know, that's Mm -hmm. one thing. But, you know, for your particular job, having to adjust to having lesser crew and stuff like that. What are the changes on the horizon that you're seeing personally that you're going to have to adjust to, for instance, like, are there other jobs that you're going to have to learn how to do in order to wear more hats? But, you know, because I also saw a rebuttal from that white paper, you know, talking about how the the answer is to not combine job descriptions because then safety becomes a factor you know you don't want a bunch of people wearing a bunch of different hats when yes you know that kind of thing i super agree with that because i think a lot of people i think some producers like i think what's going to be bad for us is that producers are going to try to do stuff like that to circumvent the amount of money they're spending things like we've got a pa who can help you but like, I don't want a PA anywhere near touching any of our stuff. Like, it's like Mm -hmm. you said, safety is like a serious concern. And especially depending on the department, trying to get people to cross train or do other departments work brings a a significant immediate safety risk. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really true with grip and electric, you know, like we're, we're hanging stuff, we're running power that's strong Mm -hmm. enough to kill people. Like, yeah, I I don't want help from other departments so that the production can save money by not letting me hire professionals who 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 actually do this job yeah yeah. so okay i'm gonna put you in the position of a producer then (laughs) how would you rectify the situation i you know it sucks because 
man, the first thing that comes to my head is, I don't know, that's not my problem. Uh, and that's, that's like a, that's a very like genie deep. But does it become your problem? Be if like, you, like if you like, can't get hired, is that a problem? You know, like that, that becomes your problem. If, you know, producers, yeah, I mean, they don't, think, they have to figure out a budget. I think that budgets will just have to adapt. I think that there are shows where like that amount of money is going to kill the project. But I think by and large, most shows can can deal with a 10% increase to budget. You know, like if mm-hmm. somebody's investing $200,000, which is nothing, if somebody's investing a million dollars in a movie, like they can probably invest $1.1 million in that movie <laughs> to make it happen, yeah. right? Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah, in yeah. commercial, there's just like no excuse. Like in, yeah. in the commercial world, like ad agencies blow so much money on stuff on commercials like you guys can definitely afford to have a safe environment i think we'll see a rise in studio work because that was definitely something that i found was going into an all stage commercial production right after the movie was that it's it's a lot easier it seems like to kind of have this contained environment in a in a stage i've been looking at a lot of stagecraft type stuff right like the people who did the mandalorian Mm -hmm. and and the way that that was shot it is perfectly poised to be the next like biggest shit in filmmaking Mm because it already was you know like it it was a cool tech and 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 favreau showed on the mandalorian that it was viable you know they said they were gonna like try it when they first went into it and like i think over half of the the show uses it in some facet so that'll be interesting because that's one of those things that's like looking at that scares me because that's actually something that i could see taking my job is that something that you would be willing to i mean uh, because you think about the lighting that's involved with that as well Mm -hmm. i mean there there's still going to be a need for lighting so how would you adapt your job to fit that kind of For me, looking at it a lot, right, like a lot of it is very different because it's this blending of game design and film production. It's like a lot of your lighting comes from the skybox. Digital environments are lit via a file called an HDRI, which is basically a 360 degree photograph of an area. And you basically get this, you know, colored skybox that provides most of the light for for stuff like that. But then they'll show in some of the demos, like if if they want to like increase light from the side or like adjust it a little bit, the guy goes in on his computer and they'll just draw a big white eight by eight square on the wall. And there's your eight by eight butterfly frame. Like for me, I think the next evolution is to be that guy (laughs) who's like controlling (laughs) that thing, which is, Mm -hmm. it's a different mindset, but you definitely still have to understand how lighting works. Like they're still Mm going to need people to tell them how to use those tools effectively or to be the person who can do both. A lot of my recent years I've spent getting really good at DMX controlling lights Mm -hmm. on set. That has been like my kind of niche for a while is like my ability to on the fly control all of the lights on a set it's and it's popular everywhere right now because it's becoming mm-hmm. more of an available thing in film. And I think that kind of leads into it. It's like the ability to program lights in an environment to like work together with mm-hmm. this led screen technology that they're using now to like present backdrops and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, old school can still be a boss. I mean, you look at Roger Deakins and what he can accomplish and like, because he has a foundation of knowing how light works. I mean, you still yeah. need to know that. I mean, I still, I, I see plenty of bad, badly lit renders and you're just like, that's not, you can, that's not real. Like you can tell <laughs> this is completely not good. Not a good render. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and that's the thing, right. It's like that the big, 
barrier to this is having camera ready assets, Mm. right? One of the things that the Mandalorian had that really helped that be a successful thing for them is a lot of the backdrops in the Mandalorian are very simple. You know, there's a lot of like practical bar interiors and stuff like that. But a lot of that show is him on like a desert planet or stuff like that. So like I think as you try to do things that are more complex and complicated backdrops, there there will become a wall where like you need artists who can create photorealistic assets that are camera ready for this technology. And like the Mandalorian was backed by ILM. So they had the greatest visual artists in the world to make all of their assets, but not every movie I think is going to be able to find, you know, Mm -hmm. digital artists who can make these things or like to be able to get really high resolution photo scans is the way Mm -hmm. a lot of people do it. So kind of having uh, your, uh, your Adobe stock, (laughs) Right. Like there will have to be a library and I bet you'll start to see a lot of things show up multiple times. <laughs> like, hey, I recognize that rock will pile. will have this, this kind of collection of assets, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think, I think in like a post COVID world, people will always want to tr- do the traditional thing. A lot mm-hmm. of people will, but I think we're going to come out with this being a major thing in film because what it does is is really awesome like the being able to tie the specularity of the lighting to your visual effects is something that people spend so much time trying to do on set and that that setup really kind of trivializes the whole process like there's a lot of like it becomes a pre-production game like Mm -hmm. can you build the world to shoot in and then actually like going in there and shooting it is like easy as shooting in the real world Mm -hmm. but it does It, it becomes this which I think a lot of this COVID stuff gets really pre-production heavily weighted is you really got to spend more time planning these things, which is Mm -hmm. like good because everybody could stand to spend more time planning (laughs) movies as it is. Like this is true. (laughs) Like everybody's always in such a rush to shoot their movie. And if, if this makes people slow down a little bit and like miss less details, then that's kind of a good thing. Like you kind of need that. Did you guys have shorter shooting days? No, pretty standard 12s plus you know, if we went into OT, the, the commercial I did, did tins and we went over on those quite a few days. So that's interesting. Cause I, I don't also really see how much more unsafe it is to be in a room with the same people for an extra four, four hours. hours or something, yeah. you know, like hmm. interesting it, that I think exhaustion, maybe that, immune yeah, system. Yeah, I guess. Right. Like you can say that like you're putting your immune system at risk, but I mean, yeah, that's just filmmaking is always going to be like that. They're always going to like <laughs> grind the crew into the ground. Like that's, that's a conversation that's been going on for years. It's like whether uh, we should be allowed to like have lives and work. In the entertainment <laughs> <industry>. <laughs> There's a really interesting article called like, we don't want things to go back to normal. Normal wasn't working. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I think and I've, I've, I've seen that. I think it was written by an editor. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see if we can try to get him on there. It's so like- hard <laughs> sitting in your room cutting for too long. Um, I, I, we'll I get that mentality and because I think it's like we definitely push it a lot, especially mm. with things like people driving back from set really late at night and being ah. sleep deprived. I'm kind of a glutton for punishment when it comes to filmmaking, though. So I think like, anybody who's in this industry originally, like they kind of want that. It's kind of yeah. a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like like I didn't mind not having. Like, I don't mind not having a whole lot of time to sit and think about my life. It's nice that like projects are so like they just take over everything in my life that I don't really got to worry about anything else. But like that (laughs) that might just be me. It it definitely is a thing. I think like in general, we should take a hard look at like what 
what we are requiring of people to, to work in this industry and, and being more moderate about mm. the time that we're making people work. But also it's, if you work in it, you can see why like leaving at the end of the day, instead of spending two hours to pick up the last pieces of this scene, like you're talking about a massive increase in cost to add days to a show, like the mm-hmm. day rate of every person on the show paying to rent everything for another mm-hmm. day, like the amount of money that adding time to movies increases the budget is like astronomical, which makes it really hard in the indie world, which is mostly what I do is the kind of like smaller non-union indie productions. I think in the big show world, yes, like they should just, because they can afford on studio projects to come back and do it later. You know, they just, Mm -hmm. you know, want to get it out of the way while they can. Are you wanting to pursue the union? Yeah, I do want to move up to bigger shows. There's definitely like bigger stuff that shoots in Texas. A lot of the stuff around here that's bigger is episodic, which is a little daunting to me. I don't know how I feel about working for six months straight, which like (laughs) probably sounds weird to like an accountant who's like, I've worked for 12 years straight. But like the idea of going to work like the same job every day for like six, six to nine months seems really intense. And I really like the like do a commercial here, do a movie. Movie here, you're an like artist a month and a half that's time, why right? yeah but i would like to do bigger stuff but that's kind of a weird i'm trying to thread that needle like a lot of people will come up through the union and the industry by working for other people in that mm-hmm. position right and i'm a little bit maybe prideful i've been gaffing for a long time just like gaffing my way up smaller productions mm-hmm. so the idea of going on the next marvel movie to pull cable is like not appealing to me at all. Like that's that's a step back. I don't care how big the movie is. Like if I'm not a department head anymore, it's a step back for me. So it's hard. I'm trying to figure out how to like thread that needle of like getting on a bigger show without Mm -hmm. having been on a bigger show yet, (laughs) which is kind of tricky. And I think I might've found it recently is this, this commercial I just did. I actually just ran the DMX board Mm. um, for a gaffer. Who's like a friend of mine. And I, I really, I actually think that might be the the ticket in because it's kind of like there's still a level of creativity where like you've got your hands on it and like you can be like, what about this? And like, what about that? And you're working Mm -hmm. like very closely with the DP and the gaffer. And also I'm not like having to like, pull banded cable in the mud and the rain and stuff, you know, but that's, that's definitely my next kind of big thing is like trying to get onto a bigger union. I've got my days. I need to just join Yahtzee down here, but I just haven't done it. So we have some listener questions from our Insta and Facebook stories and Twitter. If you want to ask your questions to future guests, our handle on Insta and Twitter is Coolab Inc podcast. So, all right. Gaffers and grips are known for outrageous rigging to make things work taping a shirt to a window to cut reflection, all that fun stuff. There is an Instagram, pardon the French, shitty rigs. What would be your proudest submission to that account? I think in general, you know, when it comes to like specific rigging a lot, that pretty much falls on the grips, you know, like if I Mm -hmm. need a light in a weird place, I don't want to, nah, it's not my grips. Go hang that, make it safe. (laughs) I don't don't want it to be my responsibility if it falls. But I will say like, especially on the smaller end as a gaffer, there must be at least one scene in every movie where I am hiding behind something 
or crouched <laughs> on the ground holding a light in this like really weird spot, you know, like lately with like my having gained the ability to control lights on set, this is less common, but it used to always be hiding somewhere with a dimmer box or like a switch. Like if somebody goes into a room and turns on a light, I'm like crouched underneath the bed with the switch so that when they go to click the light, I can hit the switch to turn all of the lights on in the room, you know? <laughs> I think that that's something that is like a super common little janky thing that you do. And then I think some of the cooler rigging kind of like trick stuff is lately, you know, Titan tubes are all the rage these days. You know, Mm. they're these battery powered RGB tubes that, you know, are 16 pixels across the length of them. So you can do a lot of cool animations with them. And we've done some really awesome process trailer work lately where we're, you know, running a car on the process trailer and then running a bar of Titans down the passenger side of the car high and one down the driver's side of the car low. And then you match your light color to the color of the street lights on the street you're driving. And then we'll chase light down the tubes. So like as you're shooting into the car, you get the street lights as the car is passing, which like a lot of the times you don't get the output you want out of existing street lights. And people did poor man's process for forever where they just kind of like you'd put a light on like a T pole and spin it around over the car if you were like in a studio. But bringing some of those techniques to a trailer using these kind of modern LED technologies that we have is this great blending of both worlds. We can have kind of really specific lighting, but still have like the realistic environment of them like driving around in the background. And and we've done all kinds of stuff where it's like street lights going. We'll have on the passenger side, like it's white light to halfway down the car and then it turns to red light. So you can have a button to make it look like a car passes them on the opposite huh. side. If you want to like kick some light in to the driver, you know, for whatever reason. And we've used it for like crash scenes where like somebody swerves to avoid another car instead of actually having another car we do the entire thing with a with a programmed light chase that's that's some of the more fun stuff i've gotten to do lately i think that like is is an interesting new way of kind of blending two older techniques process and poor man's process together to make something that I think like looks better than either mm. one of them ever did on their own. I, I had no idea about even just like the T-pole thing. That's pretty Oh that's yeah. Pretty nah, we just like my, <laughs> I think my second feature, we, we did one of those, but it's like a whole, I mean, cause you've got, you, you, you've got the, the T thing swinging with like the bastard Amber on it. And that's the street lights. <laughs> and then you'd put two six fifties pointing like away from the car and then have two guys with silver reflectors. Yeah. And you read the back six fifty, and they're the cars and they go like this and they would get in time and one would sweep it down the side. And then the guy in the back would pick it up with the red and carry it out. <laughs> I, old poor man's process was crazy. Cause I mean, you're, you've got like nine, grips and electrics sitting there doing weird things to make the light move around on the car. And then there's always the guy at the back who's got the stick underneath the bumper and he's doing this number <laughs> to make the car move. I mean, that, that was got definitely it was fun back in the day shooting, but it also always looked about as cheesy uh, as it felt while you're doing it. <laughs> Last listener question. When was a time that you felt defeated on set, like your project was falling apart and how did you fix it? I think I've had times where I felt defeated and I don't think I've ever had it where I felt like the film was falling apart. I think if if you get the feeling that the film is falling apart, it usually ends up not feeling like it's your fault. Like (laughs) there's a lot of like the, I mean, especially with grips and electric, like to go back to the truck and talk 
about how awful everything is going because the producers suck. But I've definitely had problems with connecting with DPs that becomes Mm -hmm. very frustrating where like you can't get on the same wavelength with a DP. And that is really, and I don't even know what the answer, because that one, the the last movie I had where that was the case, it really just spiraled out of control until it ended with me and the guy totally not being able to stand each other at the end of the movie. And I got kicked off of set, which I never Mm -hmm. thought was going to (laughs) happen. Oh my gosh. So like, I've definitely had those moments of like going out and like, you know, feeling like you're just not being able to achieve what you think, but you kind of just got to bite your lip and bear it, man, because film sets, there's not really time to sit around and think about your decisions. Although I'll say I do spend a fair amount of time thinking about my life decisions while I'm on a film set, but like it, it really becomes one of those things where like, I, I think it's a key thing in filmmaking to be able to bear it. Like Mm -hmm. when things are not going great, you have to bear it because there's no leaving. There's no like nothing's going to stop. You have to finish today's work and you have to do your best because like you're you're currently on your job interview for your next job. But it definitely is one of those things where there's not a whole lot of room for for feeling sorry for yourself, um, (laughs) which is something that I I love to do. So it's difficult for me at times. But a lot of the times I'll just excuse myself, you know, go outside, take like a breather and and then go back in there and just like jump back in and get back at it. Because like everybody's there and everybody's got to do their part or else it's not going to happen. Well, thank you so much for taking time at like, especially after like very, very quick recovery after your uh, last shoot. (laughs) But uh, yeah, seriously, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and check out more episodes at media.collabinc.org. If you have comments or know someone who would be a great guest on our show, send in your suggestions to Tanya at collabinc.org. Matt, thanks so much again for your time. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on there to hear. 